This is Audio Immunity, a podcast about our body's never-ending fight with the outside world. Hi everyone, welcome to Audio Immunity. I'm Kevin Bonham, and joining me, as always, is Kate Franz. Hello. And Matt Woodruff. Hi, everybody. So we've taken a bit of a hiatus in the last year. The last episode that was posted, we recorded in June, and then I was a lazy bastard and didn't actually edit it until, like, October. And then we also haven't recorded now. Oh, I should say the date. It's now November 21st, <laughs> week before Thanksgiving. Hopefully this episode is going to get posted much quicker, and we're going to try to increase our turnaround time. But Promises there were some excuses. That happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are some good excuses. For yeah. instance... Matt is now married. Yes. So congratulations, Yay. Matt. So yep. And I got a terrible cat as a result. So if you hear a screaming cat in the background, uh, that's what that is. I you cut out on my yeah. audio, so I have no idea what you said. But I'm just going to oh, keep moving yeah, on. Too. It was a good joke. <laughs> it was recorded, I'm sure. Yeah. So I don't know what's been going on with you, Kate. I feel like I haven't talked to you in a while. Mm, just working, trying to finish my PhD. <laughs> I'm getting close. Hopefully, getting yeah. close. Yeah trying to put the last hurrah to finish this paper and then get the heck out of here. <laughs> and then there you go. maybe one of these days I'll get married, you know. All right. Just All right. minor minor details. PhD is definitely more important. <laughs> no, yeah. uh, like, I feel like no I big said events, that. Just PhD to marriage. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, whatever. No, I feel like I said that th- for 3 years. Okay, don't say that. <laughs> I feel to like me. the words no, 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 no. I mean, I'm sure that you are actually getting close, but I remember saying that over and over and over again for a long well, period of time. And I think that explaining what a PhD is to someone, that's really what it is, right? <laughs> it's its just total uncertainty as to what's actually happening in your life at any given moment. So I'm not renewing my lease, so I need to be done. <laughs> ah, that is a good way of playing that. <laughs> I'm betting on myself. <laughs> All right. I like it. I like it. Excellent. Well, um, so do we want to do the listener comment at the end? Or I just got an email this Let's morning. Let's do it now. I mean, you you're, seem excited about it. You're like so happy. Someone's going to say like, Kevin's my favorite. Okay, here's here's the real deal. All the feedback says, Kate, I love you. Man, I just think that you should be the host, like the main host. Kevin, like kick Kevin out. So I have a feeling that this is some like very pro Kevin feedback that he just wants to he just wants to like trump yeah, it. We have to give it to him every once it. in a while. <laughs> First of all, I have access to all of the listener feedback, and I'm that's just a straight actual, up lie. Actual listeners who come and seek me out and talk to me face to face. Oh, I right. see. It's okay. It's the Kate groupies that we're talking <laughs> exactly. about. Exactly, the ones who find Fair me, enough. who can recognize me by my voice, just carrying among the halls. <laughs> yeah, those are outliers. But okay, so here's the here's the listener feedback. So Lewis writes. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everyone. I just started listening to the podcast, and I think it's awesome. I really wish you guys would create an immunology MOOC, preferably in Coursera, because I've been wanting to take an immunology course for ages. As an aside, is there really not an immunology MOOC on Coursera? That seems crazy to what me. What is a MOOC? You're saying words that I don't understand. I, so I, <laughs> a MOOC is a massive open online course. Okay, because uh, I just Urban Dictionary MOOC, and it's not that. <laughs> M-O-O-C. <laughs> okay. Okay, so back to, the, back to Lewis's letter. Anyway, that's not why I'm contacting you. I'm contacting you because your apoptosis discussion in episode 5 drove me absolutely nuts. 
The pronunciation of apoptosis is one of my admittedly many pet peeves. So I just have a very simple argument to share with you. So I I want to set this aside again. So before we started recording, I mentioned to Matt and Kate that this letter makes me look real good. And so I want to thank Lewis about this. Okay, so here's Lewis's arguments. Number one, lots of words come from Greek, Latin, French, or countless other languages. Two, we are communicating in English, not in those other languages. Three, each language is bound by its own rules and not by the rules of those other languages. In French, you do not pronounce things how they are pronounced in Russian. In English, you do not pronounce things how they would be pronounced in Greek. That's kind of the whole point of being a different language. Another aside, that's not entirely true. No, I completely disagree with everything that you just said. Hold on, but hold on, he's got examples. (laughs) He's got examples, hold on, hold on. Okay, okay. So four, a couple of examples of this are the word France, which comes from the French, yet we do not pronounce the R with the uvular trill. So we do not say France, well, Charlotte for example. Does. Yeah, but she's from France. <laughs> but she's Bal- speaking in English. She is speaking in balcony, English. Balcony, from Italian balcone, we do not say balcone, but balcony. Um, and I thousands of other words. Balcone. Yes, but he's Italian. <laughs> God damn it, Kate. <laughs> Go not on. only not only do a lot of words come from Greek and other languages, but lots of words have the exact same PT construction and are not found just in English. Helicopter, Greek helix for spiral, and pteron, P-T-E-R-O-N, for wing. But in scientific language, hemiptera, diptera, nearly all other insect orders, as well as, I don't know how to pronounce this word, uh, sarcoptergii, maybe? Um, therefore, unless you're the kind of pretentious asshole who would go say Mexico for Mexico and look out from a balcony and a helicopter resembling an insect from the order Dittera files in, uh, flies in front of you, the word apoptosis is most definitely pronounced with two audible Ps. And thank you, Lewis, because I totally agree. Unfortunately, Lewis, one, thank you for listening. I really appreciate that. And like, fortunately, because Kevin and I can be friends, we know that people with differing point of views can get along and that the world can be a positive, happy place. So no but he's offense not done. to Lewis, Hold on. but pterodactyl, the end. <laughs> It is precisely the kind of twisted thinking that advocates the apoptosis pronunciation that has led the English language to be such a bloody mess. Also disagree there a little bit. Yeah, I disagree with that entirely. You should read about John McWhorter. He's got some great books on this, but I agree with all your stuff. It's inefficient, inconsistent, counterintuitive, and illogical. For the love of rationality and efficiency, please let's not make it worse by pronouncing helicopter with a or hel- pronouncing helicopter with a p and apoptosis without it. Yeah, so I will. I'll second the pronunciation of pterodactyl, which is so the if... beginning of the word, though, and we don't have mm-hmm. ways of saying pterodactyl. I think you just said so, it right. So I will. But we go to. We don't say helicopter. Let's let's be honest. We don't say. Right, right. We do say things like che rather than ches, right? Because that's the French French pronunciation of the word. I think that there are plenty of... So here's what we'll do. Let me construct my counter argument. Lewis, first of all, thank you for (laughs) for going through. I mean, that is a well-constructed argument. And I'm totally on board uh, with it, by the and way. And I, yep, and Kevin agrees with you. I tend to disagree. So let me uh, consider what you've written here and come up with my own argument. <laughs> I just want to say, first of all, this could be a tomato-tomato thing. And I'm perfectly okay with that because we said that once you get a PhD, you're now allowed a few mispronunciations. Right. I'm going to move that apoptosis no longer has to be counted against my list no, of mispronounced words no. because it is perfectly respectable. 
I do. I, I, will, I do. Think I will give you it's, that it's accepted. Yeah, exactly. It is accepted. But you're still wrong. And the thing I love about English, counter to what Lewis is saying about English, I think the fact that it is such a mess is one of the great features of it. Because usage is all that really matters. I think in it's terms always of been a mess. I think it's always been a mess. That's true. It's always progressing. And unless we're sticking with the Queen's English, which we are most certainly not doing. And even then, right? Check out. So if you want to Ch- learn check more out about Beowulf. this, Beowulf. <laughs> yeah, yes. What? Uh, <laughs> this took an interesting turn. No, that's, well, have you that's ever old read? English. That's where it's, it came it's from. It's old English, right? That is the Queen's English, but old. Okay. So there's this guy, John McWhorter, who has a book called Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue. It's all about the evolution of English and how it came to be and how it's got like smatterings of all kinds of other crap. And it's actually, English is actually way more simple than a lot of languages because of all of the different rounds of like immigration and people coming in and not being able to speak it well. So it's basically like this amalgamation of pigeon tongues and stuff. It's really, it's a really interesting book, and you should read it. But thank you, Lewis, for proving that I'm right about the pronunciation <laughs> of apoptosis. And with that, we are going to move on to a particular paper that Matt found, which is kind of cool, that's about the immune system, but is also about crazy microbes. And pregnancy. And pregnancy, which are themes that have come up more than once on audio immunity, I feel, even though we've only had 14 episodes or this is our 14th episode. It's come up a lot. So the Is this because you have pregnancy is, on your brain, Kevin? It's not because I have pregnancy. Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure? Okay. I am sure. Don't don't I would never I would Don't never, put ideas uh, in the minds of our audience. <laughs> I would never uh, pressure a woman about having children, but I do not extend the same courtesy to you, Kevin. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's we're, the that's how I have seen the world, I think, since getting married as well. I feel we're like we're I waiting get on kids until I have it. a stable job prospect, which is sadly not looking good. Is a postdoc uh, not that? That's weird. No, postdoc is not a stable job prospect, Matt. Someone told me that if I went into science, I would never have to want for a job. No, I'm joking. I think it's okay. but uh, mm. They lied to you. <laughs> They really did. Okay, so the article is called The Placenta Harbors a Unique Microbiome, and this was published in Science Translational Medicine in May of last year, and the authors are... Oh, man, how do you pronounce that? You yeah. think that's Kirstie? Agard. There's somebody... Agard. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> There's way too many vowels. <laughs> yeah, that person is from Scandinavia. I'm um, yeah. Kirsty Agard? The last, yeah, that sounds right. And the last author is James Versalovich, or Versalovic. And it's a pretty cool paper. It's about the fact that the placenta harbors a unique microbiome, as the title suggests. Which is a bit so, surprising, I would say. Yeah, I was so surprised. tell us why that's surprising, Matt. Yeah, so I think this... Uh, this focus on the microbiome has erupted in probably the last 10 years or so. The NIH now has a human microbiome project. And I think it's all coming because we're starting to recognize just how important our commensals are in directing our general immunity. And this is something that we've talked a little bit about in the past let's on this just, podcast. Let's just certainly. define some terms there. So commensal comes from, it might be, it's either Greek or Latin. Again, Lewis, we need your help. For uh, eating at the same table, commensal is is basically mean eating together. 
And right. that's the, the microbiome is a different word for essentially all the bugs that live in you and on you, I think is the right, which is extensive, definition. by the way, it's an extensive list. So I recently uh, gave a lecture on this topic. And so I was just poking around some of the literature trying to get a sense of what has been done in commensal biology as uh, in particular in relationship to immunology. And there's actually an astounding amount out there that's come out in probably the last two or three years. So about 10 years ago, there was this big rush towards figuring out all of the different bacterial populations in the gut. And essentially what they came up with was there in the end are about 10 to the 14th bacteria in your gut. And I always hate that statistic because everyone who studies the microbiome will always say there's 10 to 14th bacteria in your gut. And that means you're outnumbered. And who are you really? And everyone says exactly the same statistic. So sorry to repeat that to you again. <laughs> but, uh, and the other thing that's really interesting is that apparently that nobody knows where that number came from. And it's yeah, most probably false. It's probably false. But so. here's, here's what's not false. Uh, and this, these are some things that I came up with uh, as I was looking through. That 10 to the 14th bacteria is made up of about uh, 12,000 different species. So in addition to there being a lot of them, there's a huge diversity in them. And of those 12,000 species, they're probably coming from about 400 phylotypes. So, And and in addition to that, just to tack on a little bit, I think the thing that is even more interesting from a biological perspective is not so much the number of species because it's actually kind of hard to identify individual species with the mechanisms or with the methods that we're going to be talking about that's used in this paper and in a lot of other studies. Uh, because what we're really looking at is we're looking at signals of evolution, the 16S ribosomal RNA sequence, which is slow to evolve, but we don't have super... The way that we make cutoffs between bacterial species is kind of uh, ambiguous. But what's really interesting is we can look at the sort of genetic diversity in those microbes and look if you look at the number of genes that are present and the uh, metabolic potential of the microbes that are in our gut and elsewhere that is even more staggering so other numbers the sort of slightly false statistic that there are 10 times more bacterial cells in our body than human cells that's a little bit dubious and also i agree with matt that it's uh, kind of overused but another related statistic is that there are uh, between 50 and 100 times more genes in our microbial populations than there are in our human in our human cells yeah so. all of which by the way are targets for the immune system right mm-hmm. every one of those gene products is something that your immune system has never seen and so this is i think why the focus has been in the last 10 years or so on what's there and more importantly how is your immune system able to selectively identify the things that are pathogenic versus the things that aren't pathogenic so essentially why aren't we all just giant bags of immunity walking around that responds to everything we eat and responds to all of our commensals and everything and so inflammatory bowel disease is essentially a dysregulation of the immune system and for various reasons depending on the disease you're essentially getting aberrant inflammation and it's really problematic for those people that suffer from it so how is it that your immune system deals with all of this and the answer seems to be you know real broad strokes here the answer seems to be that the gut immune system is just fundamentally set up differently than other parts of your immune system it tends to be a little bit sequestered from the gut 
itself, so the lumen of the gut, right? So you have a couple mucus barriers, and there are some stromal cells that play a large role in making sure that those two things are sort of separated. But even when you get underneath it, the dendritic cells and the things that are making the decisions as to whether to respond or not are taking in tons and tons of signals that we don't generally think about. Those signals are coming directly from commensals in many cases, and those signals essentially instruct the DCs only to respond in cases where there's an actual problem. So a really good example of this is dendritic cells can actually sense quorum sensing molecules in some cases. So quorum sensing is something that bacterial populations will do in order to assess how many of that bacteria there are around them, and that can affect the way that each individual bacteria will operate. DCs can sense some of those signals directly and get a sense of whether there is too much clustering going on, for example, and that could be an indication that something is is dysregulated. So I think this uh, this push into microbiota started with bacteria. It hasn't ended there. Recently, they've started to look at viruses in the gut. Again, you know, numbers aren't always trustworthy in situations like this, but they estimate that there's probably roughly 1,200 different viral genotypes that exist at a steady state in your gut as well. Most of those are long-tailed phages, so these are viruses that prey on bacteria. And the reason I bring all of this up is I think it's important not to just think of the gut as this place where bacteria just sort of hang out and live and have nutrients and stuff. It's a living, breathing ecosystem, right? You have predator-prey relationships, uh, bacteria are competing for space, and all of this turns into a really complex mess where you have gram-positive, gram-negative bacteria all competing, dying, blowing up, right? Because bacteria don't have apoptosis. <laughs> so bacteria you bastard won't apatose and so the um essentially all of these danger signals that we've talked about over and over again are constantly present in these environments and so getting your immune system to selectively identify which danger signals and which foreign genes of the 50 to 100 times the number of genes that you just said are actually foreign in your body selecting what to identify, what to respond to is a really complicated process. And so getting back to the placental paper that we're focusing on today, I think the easiest way for people to understand pregnancy for a long time, because pregnancy is essentially something giant and foreign, right? We've talked about pregnancy as far as being a parasite on this this podcast, and we said that a little uh, tongue-in-cheek, but uh, the truth is that a lot of the immune response that happens surrounding pregnancy is very similar to the response that you have to a helminth infection, which is a worm. So I think the easiest way to explain why this giant foreign thing is able to live inside of a human with a competent immune system has been to assume that the mother is totally immune compromised. So people thought about this, like there's this general wave of tolerance that happens with the mother, which is almost certainly not true. And another assumption is that the entire process is totally sterile, right? So so essentially, the, the easiest way to think about it is just that you don't respond because you're immune compromised and there's nothing really to respond to. And there's, people often refer to the placenta as an immune privileged zone, right? So like, the way that we think about the brain and the eye as being sort of 
separated from the normal body's immune system, which is, I think, as we've mentioned before, is not strictly speaking true. It's no. not as if there's no immune activity in the brain or in the absolutely eye. Absolutely not. But they are, absolutely, they have there's different... immune activity in the brain. Right, yeah. there's the eye, different As it yeah. turns yeah. out, yeah. people inject steroids into the eye when there's inflammation. So the idea that the immune system just doesn't see any of it, I think is, it's easy to tell ourselves and it allows us to pretend that things are a little simpler than they probably are. So I think, yeah, we've, we've gone a long way assuming that these environments are sterile, especially in pregnancy. And yeah, so I was surprised to see that uh, when you actually take a look at the placenta, it may not be. Right. And so, so I think the keys here are how do we actually take a look at the placenta or any other place where we're looking at the microbiome? And so there's, broadly speaking, there's two different ways of looking at the population, large populations of bacteria. In the past, what would happen is we would take a sample from someplace. We'd have a bunch of different types of media that we would attempt to grow bacteria on. So we'd streak out the bacteria. We'd try to isolate single colonies by themselves. And then we try to characterize those single colonies of bacteria. And it turns out that when you try to study really complex populations of bacteria, that technique is not anywhere near sufficient. So a lot of bacteria, especially in the gut, are anaerobic, meaning they die in the presence of oxygen. There are a lot of metabolic requirements that we have no idea how to recapitulate. And in many cases, it's possible that you have relationships between bugs where one bug needs to produce some metabolite that another bug needs to survive. And so they never survive on their own. So studying these populations using traditional microbiological techniques uh, is very difficult. So just to emphasize that, that 2005 paper that I mentioned looking at diversity in the gut, 62% of the bacteria that were pulled out of that study were entirely novel, had been undescribed, and 80% of them had been uncultured. So exactly what you're saying, essentially what they saw was only about 20% of what they found was able to be put into culture. Right. And so the reason that there's been an explosion of microbiological research in the past decade is precisely because of the new uh, genomic sequencing technologies that have come online. So these are essentially ways of reading the DNA code of a lot of different things at the same time, or rather getting many, many more sequence reads than we could in the past. And I'll explain what that means. So typically the way that we, when we sequence DNA, what we're really doing is we are reading the genetic code base by base. So we're saying there's an A, there's a G, there's a G, there's a C, and doing that over and over again. And we generate something called a read, which is essentially just knowing one particular sequence of DNA. Yeah, it's basically just a Word document with the letters just typed out. Right. I mean, in like its simplest form. And the the old version of sequencing, if you want to look it up, you can look up Sanger sequencing, which is something that's still used uh, quite a bit uh, in biology today. And it's pretty cheap and easy to do nowadays. You just send off some DNA sample to a company. Sanger sequence reads, you typically get between 100 and maybe at the out. Uh, at the outside, a thousand letters at a time that you can read in one go. And for a lot of applications, that's, that's plenty. If we want to just look at the sequence of one gene, if we know what we're targeting, we can amplify that region when we can sequence it. And 100 to 1,000 letters is perfectly good. And each tube that we send off for sequencing, we're expecting to have one sequence. The trouble is, is if we want to, for instance, sequence the genome of 
even a microbe, let alone a human. So you can, the Human Genome Project was this huge effort that advanced a lot of these techniques, but even a microbe, their genomes are typically between one and five million base pairs long. So between one and five million DNA letters, and you can imagine doing this a hundred or a thousand letters at a time would be really, really slow. And that's just for one isolated bug. If now we're talking about hundreds or thousands of bugs in one sample from stool or from placenta in this case, it's basically impossible to do with old school sequencing techniques. So the explosion in the last 10 years has come from uh, these so-called next generation sequencing technologies, which I think is kind of a weird term at this stage because we're now like three or four generations in. So, But regardless, the, the key feature of all of these things that are called next-gen sequencing technologies are the fact that you can get millions and millions and millions of individual reads from a single sample. So you can, even though you're only sequencing between 100 and 500 base pairs in the case of uh, Illumina sequencing technology, at a time, you're doing that a million times from a single sample. And using some fancy bioinformatics that I'm not gonna go into, you can basically take all of those millions of reads and you can try to line them up and you can reconstruct an entire genome with some caveats out of these short reads. And I, I like to describe this as if you take, if you imagine taking a book and tossing it into a wood chipper and you get a bunch of page fragments out and now you have to align all those page fragments it would be impossible if it was just one book, but if you have a thousand copies of that book and you throw them all into the wood chipper, you're going to have some pages where you have, you know, the first half of the page, some pages where you have the middle half and some people, or the middle third, and then the second half. And so you can sort of line those up and reconstruct the entire genome out of it. But in the case of this study, it's more like you threw a thousand books into a wood chipper. And now you want to say like, which page, go, like which section goes to which book? Yeah. Exactly so right. Here, so like instead of just doing like most sequencing you target like one you have one target here you don't even know what you're looking at and you have millions and millions of of actual targets that you're interested in trying to identify. Right. The question really is how many books are there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. How many different kinds of books? And so so the two main methods of looking at this are what we call amplicon sequencing versus metagenomic sequencing. And so I'll try to do that very briefly. Basically, every organism that we know of has a couple of genes that are really highly conserved and don't evolve very quickly. They don't change very quickly. So the most common one used in microbiology research is the small subunit of the ribosome uh, or 16S ribosomal sequence. And this is a sequence that's found in every single bacteria. Most bacteria only have one copy of this. And it's a gene for an RNA product, which means that every base is actually important to the structure. The, sh the folding of the RNA is what matters. And so individual base changes happen at a much, much reduced frequency compared to protein coding genes. And so if, if you want to just see what sorts of species are present in a population, you can amplify just the 16S ribosomal gene using PCR to amplify this certain genomic yeah. region. So you use primers that are pretty common. Right. And so you can just sequence that 16S gene. And the reason that this is useful is because the, the fidelity of your reconstruction depends on how many times you've read the same sequence. We call it the, the number of reads per base or the sequencing depth. And if you are looking at hundreds and hundreds or thousands of species, getting sufficient read depth for one type of gene is much easier and cheaper also. 
So the other way to look at this is, uh, as Kate mentioned, used in this paper, is called metagenomic sequencing, where basically we are just sequencing all the DNA that's present. We're not amplifying for anything in particular. We're amplifying everything that's present, and then we're attempting to take those reads, align them as much as possible to reconstruct slightly larger pieces of uh, the genome, and then trying to identify what those regions are and what they do. And we can do that in ways that I can talk about in a sec, but... Does that make sense to you guys? <laughs> I think so. I mean, it, so is it just me? So I guess like 10 years ago, 10, 8, 9 years ago, metagenomics, I think, hit like its, its like peak popularity. And there are so many papers about people doing the metagenomics of all these different, like, not just the human body and like looking at the, the commensals that we have, but also places like the ocean. So Craig Venter famously did a metagenomic study on the Sargasso Sea. And so we had all this information. I feel like I haven't seen very many metagenomics papers recently. Do you think people are are straying away from this or is it just not as sexy as it was 10 years ago? No, I think that there's still a lot of people doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that, yeah, they don't get published in Science and Nature because going from these DNA sequences to understanding what they're doing, Mm -hmm. that leap is very, very difficult. And so I think there was an explosion in the same way that people sort of thought like once once we sequence the human genome, we're going to understand everything about biology because we're going to have the source code for how humans work. And then we got the sequence and we realized like, oh, actually knowing what these genes are doesn't actually tell us anything about what they're doing. And so we have to do a lot more basic science to really understand it. And you can look, there's public data sets, uh, metagenomic data sets from all over the place, just huge data sets and people publish them and then they don't have any idea how to take it forward. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think that they have fallen slightly out of favor and we're now more interested in, so what you're saying is, so we know that the genes are present, but we don't know if they're active. And so the way that you know that they're active is if they're being transcribed, so that they're made and go from DNA to RNA, and then presumably from RNA to protein, so they're present. Uh, the gene product is is present in the in the bug. So I think I think we've now, like our sequencing efforts have turned more to RNA sequencing and trying to map the epigenetics um, and and look at more look at like more data that these things are present and act and active that's that's definitely part of it yeah but i think it's switched from a feature like it's it's no longer the headline yeah right being able to do a metagenomic study is no longer publishable just because you did a metagenomic study it's actually quite easy that's a not easy. Easy is the wrong term. It's a but, relative easy. But, yeah. but it's relatively easy in comparison to what it was. And so I think now people are doing it, but you need a different headline, right? So a, a good example of this is when people were studying ulcerative colitis in mice, you have this spontaneous ulcerative colitis model and somebody's mice were spontaneously developing it and then they handed those mice off and then in a different lab environment all of a sudden these mice were no longer developing ulcerative colitis and so the question was well what's the difference why are some labs experiencing that this mouse would develop this disease and others weren't and it turns out the answer was there was a small difference in segmented filamentous bacteria presence in the gut. Now, it would have been impossible to figure that out without metagenomics, but the metagenomics would not have carried that paper. You actually needed the data showing that, you know, the introduction or the deletion of that one bacteria led to ulcerative colitis. Yeah. 
So I think it's just turned more into a tool than than a headline. Yeah. Right. I mean, Sanger sequencing, I'm pretty sure, was a Nobel Prize winning discovery. And now, as I said, it's a thing that every lab does probably every week. But I want to go back to something that Kate said about the the limits of this in terms of like knowing that a gene is there is not necessarily knowing that it's active. But I think it's even more than that, because if you look at the genomic content of, of a lot of these bugs, when you try to do something called annotation, which is basically you take that, that string of letters, of DNA letters, and you try to say, like, what are the genes? The way that we figure that out is we compare the sequences that we see to sequences in a database that have known function. The trouble is a huge percentage, in some cases up to 50% of the genes that we identify have no known function. No one's ever studied them. And they're literally called hypothetical protein because we don't even know that they are genes, let alone what enzymatic activity or structural activity or whatever that they have when they're produced. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of limitations to this sort of study. And that sort of gets to what Matt was saying that what we really need is we need more functional characterization of these things. But unfortunately, that's very difficult to do. And I think we'll talk about some of that in this paper because they don't do a ton of real functional characterization in this paper. Okay. Um, let's move to the paper. Yeah. Let's yeah. do that. So I think I think it's important to sort of give a landscape of what's going on in pregnancy uh, immunologically before we really dive into the bacterial content because I sort of... The reason I thought that this paper was cool and it, it stuck out to me was just because there is so much immunology already happening at this boundary that to add in an additional level of complexity at the bacterial level, um, I don't know. I Honestly, I think that this is probably one of the more complicated things that you could study in immunology because of all the factors playing in. So to start with, just biology 101, right? So eggs get fertilized in the fallopian tubes. They travel down the fallopian tubes. They enter into the uterus and eventually they have to attach themselves into the endometrium, right? So the endometrium is the uterine wall and that's where the implantation is going to occur. That's where the blood supply is eventually going to come from. So all of that is critical. You can imagine the endometrium is not just immune negative, right? The mother has an immune system, and it's certainly important that you keep the uterus relatively healthy and functioning, so that immune system is quite active. So if you actually take a look at what is involved in the endometrial immune system, you get a lot of the normal things that you'd expect. You have macrophages, you have a lot of CD8 T cells that are important for viral control, you even get these extra lymphoid aggregates that we sometimes see in large organs that have high bacterial content. So the lungs, for example, have these sort of ectopic lymph nodes, basically, B cells, T cells, dendritic cells, clusters of these things. And those are present in the endometrium, but they tend to be present in the endometrium pretty far away from the surface that the blastocyst, which is what the fertilized egg is going to turn into when it turns into that big ball of cells, we call that a blastocyst. So when the blastocyst implants, you're implanting into an environment that is immune competent. And one of the things that's really interesting about this environment, it has, it has this weird cell subset called uterine NK cells. It actually makes up probably 70% of the immune system in the endometrium. So those are UNK cells. And UNK cells are weird. They're very, very strange. So have we talked? I can't remember. Have we talked a lot about NK cells? Uh, I don't remember, to be perfectly honest. 
So NK cells are natural killer cells, and you can think about their job, people talk about them in a number of different ways, but you can think about them as sort of assessors of a cell's overall health, right? So they're very good at reading the outside of a cell, any cell, not just an immune cell. They're very good at reading the outside of a cell and asking the question, are you healthy? Is it likely that you are infected with something? And if the answer is, yes, I think that you are infected with something, you do not look healthy, their response to that is to kill them. Uh, They kill in a very similar way to the way that CD8 T cells kill. And so oftentimes when people think about natural killer cells, what they're thinking about is this killing function that they perform. And what's interesting about uterine NK cells is that they don't have any of that. They are not cytotoxic. And so the question is, if they're not cytotoxic, what are that they doesn't doing sound like barrier? an NK cell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't sound like they one are not at all. natural killers. Uh, right, exactly. So, so you have this interesting immune environment where you have modification of these different cells that we normally think about, but they're functioning in different ways. And so that's just on the maternal side. On the fetal side, we've got a blastocyst that has its own immune functions, as it turns out. So the outside of the blastocyst is made up of trophoblasts. So it's a stromal cell population, again, not an immune cell population. But the outside of these trophoblasts contain an array of TLRs, right? The entire complement. Basically, every single TLR that you can find in a human are on the surface of these trophoblasts. And interestingly, whereas we think of TLRs as generally inflammatory, a trophoblast, when hit with a TLR ligand, will produce immunomodulators. So they'll produce things like TGF-beta IL-10. On top of that, we have things that are present in the seminal plasma. We already had an episode about that, actually, with the soluble CD8. So if you want to go back and learn about all of the things that can be in seminal plasma, the seminal plasma contains a ton of immunomodulators. It also contains things like GMCSF, which is a stimulating factor for macrophages generally. It contains TGF-beta, which is an immunomodulator. And so when you're thinking about the implantation process, really what you're thinking about is this sort of coming together of three totally independent things into the same environment, trying desperately to control any bacterial populations because sex is messy, right? So generally speaking, there are normal bacteria populations in the vaginal canal, Uh, This paper would suggest there's probably some in the uterus as well. But during sex, all of the things that are normally maintained in the vaginal canal find their way up. So you have this environment, like I said, where you have bacterial presence, some of which might be pathogenic in that environment. You have an immune system, a maternal immune system that's totally different from the immune system that we're used to studying. You have a blastocyst that's trying to implant itself that is trying to control the environment so that it doesn't get rejected. And on top of that, you have this seminal plasma component, which is just throwing cytokines onto the whole thing. So as you go on in the pregnancy and you study these cells, uh, it turns out that the maternal immune system is really, really critical in the development of that placenta. So as the blastocyst implants, hopefully you've controlled local inflammation enough where the implantation isn't just rejected think that that probably happens a fair amount of the time. About 60% of miscarriages are considered preclinical. It turns out that during fertilization, there's only about a 30% chance of a fertilized egg coming to full term. But about 60% of the time, you're never going to know it because there's a, 
preclinical abortion, essentially, preclinical miscarriage. So that implantation fails a lot, but when it doesn't fail, you have all of these immunomodulators, and what they're doing is, especially things like IL-10, TGF-beta, they're talking to those uterine NK cells, and the function, as it turns out, of the uterine NK cell is not to kill anything. It is to produce things like angiopoietin and VEGF and produce tons of matrix metalloproteases. And those things are all involved in vascular formation. They're involved in tissue remodeling. They're involved in all of these different things that are going to help the placenta successfully develop. Right? I mentioned that there are macrophages at those sites as well. Usually we talk about macrophages as either an M1 or M2 phenotype, right? An inflammatory versus a wound healing phenotype. And I see Kevin shaking his head just a bit because I think we all know that uh, these sorts of dichotomies are often oversimplifications, I suppose. So in this case, we do have a macrophage population. It doesn't look exactly like an M2 macrophage. It looks a lot like these UNK cells do, actually. They produce a lot of uh, vascular growth factors. They produce a lot of tissue remodeling factors. And there's a lot of indication that a failure of these maternal immune components to be appropriately activated counterintuitively is really critical for the formation of the placenta, really critical for getting nutrients to the fetus. And there's some suggestion that things like preeclampsia, and preeclampsia is essentially a really high blood pressure uh, in the fetal environment, and it can lead to uh, lost pregnancy, there's some suggestion that that is actually a failure of both the maternal and the fetal systems from producing enough VEGF and opening up those vascular networks enough. So anyway, we've got this extraordinarily complicated immune environment, and as this immune environment develops, we have always sort of assumed that this is all done sterilely, right? We don't have, we don't really have to worry except for that initial wave of bacteria about bacterial pathogens being present, commensals being present, all of those things. And so for me, the most interesting part of this paper is not so much the genetics. I mean, the genetics of the paper are interesting, but I think what's more interesting than the genetics is the fact that you already have this ultra-complicated system, and adding on top of that a full complement of commensals, I think they say, what, 700-plus species, it just adds a layer of complexity that I don't think uh, reproductive immunology is quite ready to handle yet. I agree with that. I, I do think that the microbial genomics is is also interesting if that's sort of your focus, and I it's funny to hear you say that because I have, since graduating from my PhD, I've been working, my science has been principally focused on uh, microbial genomics in a totally different system. But The most delicious of systems. Yes, it is a quite delicious system. <laughs> uh, not the placenta. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Let's not get into eating We're placenta. Not, no, no placenta no. eating jokes. I did have a friend once who asked me after she delivered, or when she was about to deliver her first baby, should I eat my placenta? You know about science things. I was like, should I eat I was my like, placenta? Thing, Matt. You could. I mean, there's like all, it's like this naturopathic remedy for recovering quickly after having a baby. And I was like, well, you could, but I can't figure out how it would be different than just eating a lot of steak. And she's like, that sounds tastier. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot, there are like a lot of women who will 
freeze dry their placenta or do some sort of like preserving to their placenta and then put it into pills and eat it. And the idea is to replenish iron and like nutrients that the placenta has been using that you want to like regain, but different. Mice do that by eating yes. their pups' heads. Oh, boy, I mean, again, <laughs> yep. don't eat your baby's head. That You can quote me on that. Right. Maybe get I, some sweet I feel like we're past. I feel like we're past the biology of pregnancy <laughs> recovery, I suppose. I guess that's my, my point, bringing up the mouse thing. Uh, I, think, I think we've developed uh, yeah. pills, vitamins, yeah. I can't and think, steak. I don't know any particular reason why around. you shouldn't eat your placenta, but... I can't think of a compelling reason to oh, eat I'm sure your it's placenta. Fine. Yeah, it seems like this sort of animistic religion, like you consume something to like gain its power, you know? Like you, you take the heart of an elk and you consume that because that's going to give you courage or some bullshit. Look, I'm a lot faster for eating elk, elk hearts. <laughs> Thank you very much. I can much. only think of Game of Thrones, like the first season yeah. when Danny's like eating the horse heart. Ugh. Yeah. So gross. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Okay, so let's, let's, let's get back to the paper. So... <laughs> So the first the first figure is this little network diagram that the way that this is constructed is somewhat hard to explain and I don't even know that I would be able to do it justice but basically they are taking these metagenomes that they've sequenced and annotating them using something called MGRAST which is something I've used before it just stands for rapid annotation using subsystem technology and it's basically you upload a file containing your millions and millions of short DNA sequences that you got off of the sequencer. And then MGRAST attempts to take those sequences and align them to known protein coding genes and other types of genes. And then it spits out a report that tells you what proportion of those genes are used in iron metabolism, what proportion are used in membrane synthesis, what proportion are used in all these different sort of processes that have been characterized. And then what the authors do for figure one is they basically try to compare the metagenomic profile from the bugs they pulled out of the placenta from these different cohorts, and then try to compare them to metagenomes from a bunch of different places that are publicly available. You can find data sets from places on the body. Metagenomes. Yeah, exactly. So not like United States versus China or something. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. So they're comparing to, for example, the gut microbiome. They're comparing to the vaginal microbiome, which you would think is going to be the most obvious source of these bugs. It's pretty close. The right ear microbiome. (laughs) Yeah. That was my favorite. Right. Yeah. And and that's actually kind of a weird thing that we can, people have shown that there are differences in the side of your body, even if the exact same location. Your individual teeth, even. I think we mentioned that before. Individual teeth have different microbiome constants. Yeah. Yeah, but so, the takeaway from this figure is, so they do this comparison between the placenta and all these different body locations, and they see that the most, the most related microbiome site is the oral cavity between the, so the placenta is most like the oral cavity in its composition, which yeah. I thought was very interesting, because I would have guessed that it would be most like the vaginal cavity, because that is where it's, I mean, that's what's the closest to of all these sites that they looked at. It's obviously closest to the vagina. <laughs> yeah, and, and right. I will say... <laughs> a little geography I will say, <laughs> So one explanation for this might be that distance spatially does not seem to be nearly as important in selecting for microbial populations as the nature of the environment. So in other words, 
the vagina is more exposed to the outside. It probably has different temperature, pH, different nutrients that are available to the microbes. And also, as Matt was talking about, it's probably going to have a very different immune profile, different set of immune cells, different antimicrobial peptides, etc. being produced. And so the environment of the placenta, even though it's close spatially to the vagina, may be, you know, a jungle versus a forest or something in terms of the selective pressures that are acting on the bugs to... So that might control the populations differently. Now, why this would be most like the oral cavity, I don't know enough about the biology of these spaces. I think that I would think that the oral cavity is also quite different than the placenta. And it should be noted right. that even though the oral cavity is the closest, it's not actually that close. So, and it's it's hard to see from so their data, but the... it's it's not that close. Yeah, so so it should be mentioned that this has not this paper has not been totally accepted by everyone in the field. There are still a lot of people that believe that there is not a bacterial component in the placenta. And so there's this interesting, uh, it's science translational medicine, right? That's where we said the paper was from. There was a couple back and forth between someone that read the article, did not agree, and basically said, this is impossible. And the reason that they're seeing bacteria in the placenta is because either is because they're getting contamination by maternal blood. And that contamination is a result from, or sorry, the blood is contaminated with bacteria from the mouth, right? And he actually makes a bunch of points, none of which really made a lot of sense. But uh, yeah, there was some some controversy in this, and one explanation was that these bacteria could be getting you, into maternal you know blood from the found oral cavity. Most interesting on this contamination side. Okay, I assume that the placentas are collected after delivery of a baby. No. No, I think that they're actually taking placental samples oh, during pregnancy. Okay, because okay, I was gonna say so, with the yeah, so they're taking placental they're taking placental oh. biopsies. And they, the methods actually in this paper are really okay. extensive as far as how, how they prevent contamination. But essentially, they take this biopsy, they get it on a table, they clean it, and then they cut off all the sides that were potentially exposed to the air. And then they run that as their, as their sample. So the, the authors responded to that letter. Uh, from the editor, basically saying, no, we were much more careful than that. This isn't oral contamination, and there's no reason to believe that mothers just have random oral populations of bacteria hanging out in their body. I mean, unless the person at the end of the pipeline decided to spit into each of their sample collection tubes. Right, which would give you yes, interesting results. For sure. It's not publishable. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, unless they not. published it. Spitting in your tubes. <laughs> spitting in your tubes results in oral bacterial <laughs> populations. That's <laughs> I mean, the main the main reason for me to the main reason that I would discount oral contamination is mostly because the placental samples are actually quite different from yeah. other oral samples. Which so, which we see in figure two. Right. So their comparison to the oral microbiome, I think, is a Seems a little tenuous to me, but that is also good evidence that it is not contamination and I don't think is the most important part of this paper in the first place. So in figure two, they sort of line up, and these figures are always very difficult to understand unless you have a particular interest in one subpopulation of bacteria, I find. 
I like colors. Yeah, the colors are super pretty. Uh, <laughs> the thing, so there's a couple of things about figure two that I found interesting. So the first is that the this individual species that they decide to separate out. So they they mostly talk about these populations at very high phylogenetic level. So if you remember your or mnemonic from uh, high school biology, King Philip came over from Good Spain, Kingdom Phylum Class Order Family Genus Species, where at the end of that list is the more specific. A lot of the things that they're showing you are phylum level things. So Bacteroidetes, for instance, is a and Proteobacteria and Firmicutes. Those are all phylum phylum level separations, and they they separate these out and cluster them according to similarity. And as you might expect, uh, all the stool samples look more similar to each other than they look to the vaginal samples. And the placenta is sort of off in its own category in terms of clustering. Okay, so I know that you don't think that these look like the oral samples, but apart from the fact that the proportions are off a little bit between like Firmicutes and Proteobacteria, the actual Mm -hmm. composition of of the bacteria that are there is very similar. So even though, I mean- But again, at a phylum level. So in other words- Yeah, and then at a species level, right? B is like the most prominent species. Yeah. Right, and that to me looks very, very different. I, there, the placenta looks very different. Than... I disagree. They actually have the most overlap in the in the species, just not in the amounts of each species. So, like the the composition is very similar. It's just that the proportions are different. I suppose. Um, okay. I don't know. My like... computer is freezing up, so now I can't actually look at the figure. <laughs> uh, that's I was going to. We've solved this problem by not allowing Kate to look at the data. <laughs> I was going to specifically make a case if I could ever get to the figure, but. If you see like, okay, so the the bottom three, so you have the placenta essentially has every single species here, except for right. lactobacillus, I think this is, is missing here, maybe. Right, I can't, yeah. I can't tell. Lactobacillus crispatus. Um, yep. And yep. the oral samples have basically the the next largest amount of, of species that are represented. Yeah, but they, these are not... How did they choose which species to put in this figure? Did anyone read that? No. Um, let me just no. look at the figure legend here. Doesn't actually say. It says representative species at each body site. Yeah, which, so it's handpicked. Like you could, you could easily construct this figure to make it look like what you're saying is the case. Really, yeah. yeah. Any and way and you want. when you look, really, any when you way look you at want, the population actually. level stuff at the high level, there's a lot of proteobacteria in a bunch of different sites. There's, you know, a lot of actinobacteria at a lot of different sites. So, I don't know. It regardless, I mean, it it does have a unique signature, yes. right? Whether or not it's actually close to the oral cavity or not, um there are some pretty clear differences which I think are going to rule out the fact that it's a weird contamination. Yeah, problem. and then the last part of that figure is just they do a similar clustering except Instead of looking at individual species, they're looking at what I mentioned early on, which is basically a functional profile of what genes are present. And um, so they have things like lipid metabolism, energy metabolism, glycan biosynthesis. And again, they cluster things together. And the clusters, at least for the non-placental samples, pretty clearly cluster together. They're not very different between the different sites. And I don't understand how they did the clustering in the placenta because it's just a hot mess. It is just a gigantic mess of data. It's unreadable and it it doesn't look like it's clustered so i don't really understand how they did that and why it's so weird 
I was once accused of putting together a figure that was inscrutable, mm -hmm. and I have since used that word uh, to describe things like this figure. Yes. Inscrutable. Nothing can be read. I agree. Well, so we're just going to move on. The thing that you we're can say about it is that <laughs> in the placenta, there's a much more metabolism of cofactors and vitamins. So there's much more red, and there's an absence of purple. Look. Light purple. Okay, you know what? There's a couple different shades of purple in here. That's kind of annoying, but I think it's metabol metabolism of other amino acids. You're sure it's not xenobiotic? Oh, no, that's the top. Is it? I think it's also in order. Nucleotide metabolism? Is that what's gone? Where's, what color is that? Oh, or is the it pink. the xenobiotics biodegradation? Well, I see. Uh, degradation. Like the pink I can kind of see. I can follow the pattern. Like, so it kind of looks like. No, I think you're right, Kate, because I think that the order on the legend is the same as the order. Yeah, yeah the thing so it's the fourth we're looking at the purple that's the fourth color oh, up yeah. on the bottom it. yeah so metabolism, the metabolism of of why would you shade that color i don't it's very confusing because <laughs> why would you shade I know, it i agree I, <laughs> but i think this like increase in metabolism of cofactors and vitamins is why people are interested in eating the placenta afterwards because hmm. maybe it's a, a bacterial addition that you're saying right Yep. No, strong case. Strong case. <laughs> also, Thanks, Kate, for, for giving. <laughs> oh, also, a cool fact uh, outside of this, also in pregnancy, they've done studies where you look at microchimerism of fetal cells getting oh, into maternal this. circulation. And yes. essentially, you can find fetal cells everywhere. Basically, in, in every brain. organ. If you, the best, so I, uh, I thought yeah. this was adorable because the way that they did it was they found mothers who had male children and then looked for the presence of a Y chromosome and then like yep. assayed where in the body could they find it and they essentially found it everywhere. So if, if everywhere. you are a woman who has had a male child, you have small amounts of male DNA in your body, which is really cool. That's just very yeah. very cool. Yep. Yeah, it's it's like a chimeric. Yeah, it's it's awesome. It's way better it's awesome. than eating the hearts of your enemies to gain their strength. You have, <laughs> you have gained the strength from the soul of your newborn child. They have strengthened you. They're not slowly wearing you down with a lack of sleep and and lack uh -huh. of nutrition from running after them. No, you are gaining strength. Uh huh. Right. It's true. All mothers, all my friends who are it's mothers true. are strong as hell. Yeah, that is definitely yeah. true. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna call correlation causation bias there, but um, <laughs> let's move on to figure three. So or not. So in figure three, they're doing another computational thing, yeah. a, a few other computational things that are also a little bit confusing to understand. Well, I wouldn't say inscrutable. I would say. Can you read any of the words on that page? I can actually most of them, but only because I have been spending the last year and a half learning about these things because I'm doing these sort of things. No, I mean physically read them. Like I, my face is pressed against yeah, the computer actually, right if now. You, if you start I can zooming in just on this, barely on read this it. Uh, entire, it's like a really weird scanned copy that I got. And it, if you start to, to zoom in, everything becomes really fuzzy and pixelated very quickly. That, I am not having that problem. You guys are just technologically challenged. I mean, I downloaded uh, this possible. off of the science site, so, <laughs> but yeah. I'm definitely well, technologically you. challenged, no doubt <laughs> so, about it. So the first part of figure three, they're doing something called a PCA plot or principal, components, principal component analysis. And this, this is a technique that it took me a really long time to wrap my head around what this is doing. But basically, it's using statistical methods to take all of the information you have. So you have you know thousands and thousands of different data points 
and you are trying to cluster them according to a principal component is basically a the sum of a lot of other factors. You are trying to basically take the sum of the smallest number of factors that explains some amount of difference. So I, I think the way to think about it is like, say you have a really complex problem and there are all these different variables that could be leading into your problem. Like different, different variables could be affecting your problem. And then a principal component analysis says which variable that I have has the most variability in it. So which one could be skewing my problem one way to one outcome more so than all the other variables. So the thing that has like the most power to skew your result, that is like your first principal component. That's like number one. Right. So it's like a, the, it's like an ordering of your variables and how much they can affect your outcome during when you have a problem. That is correct. The thing that is confusing to me about this, and I still don't fully understand. <laughs> Well, no, because I can I can plug in I can plug it into the algorithm that mm-hmm. spits it out. The thing that is confusing is that what you are saying is variable, like those individual variables yeah. might actually be the sum of multiple variables that are. So, yeah. like, so we can't say whether the principal component is like a nutrient or it's a particular gene. We don't have any idea. Yeah. and that's that's because what you, the variable is. That's because you have to say. I mean, this is gonna get a little bit mathematical, but it's it's because you have to say that like the variables have to be independent. Of each other and so that can be hard to tell like what is really independent so a lot of things have to come together because like they are this they are all dependent on like the same thing if that makes sense it it, it makes sense intellectually the yeah. thing i have a, a the thing i have trouble with is that you know i want to know what what the reality is to some extent like i want to know principal component one math. is explained you by you should not look for it in math <laughs> nutrients <laughs> and... and making a model like i right <laughs> Ultimately, it's a way of it's a way of separating populations based on f- features that we we don't actually know what the features are, but we want to use algorithms to t- tell us and then see if there are differences. And they're comparing specifically here; they're doing this to see if they can see differences in preterm and term deliveries to see if there's a difference in the microbial components. With the the hypothesis is that maybe if you have different bacterial populations, that's either diagnostic or causative for preterm delivery and I think they're claiming that there is a difference. I'm not super convinced that there is. Yeah, their their box plots are pretty overlapping. Yeah. And they they single out a couple of species that are, you know, statistically significantly different, but the problem with that is they're probably looking at hundreds and hundreds of species and so if you have a, you know, 5% chance that something is going to come come up by chance. I mean, they say it's 0.001, but or that's in yeah. part A. I mean, the thing is that it could be that one individual bacterial species does have a large effect, and and people have seen that in things like the gut, right? Where the presence or absence of just that segmented filamentous bacteria turns out has a large role to play in how your immune system responds. But I think a lot more needs to be done before you yeah. can really buy that the microbiomes are causative in or even related to preterm pregnancy. Yeah, and one of the one of the challenges in that, and I think we discussed this on the previous podcast where we talked about pregnancy, in addition to all of the weirdness immunologically that's happening, we also don't have great animal models for this because mice, though they are like humans in a lot of ways that we can exploit experimentally, turns out mouse pregnancy is very different than human pregnancy, and so they're not really great models for human pregnancy, and there aren't really good animal models for this. So that makes 
trying to I really nail down causation very difficult. They also have a heat map that has a bunch of different gene functions and somehow trying to associate it with various things. I don't know. This this figure is a bit inscrutable in terms of what it means. Yes, as far it's as I'm spreading. Concerned. I'll probably forget about it tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. But I'll remind you. I actually have to head out, you guys. Oh, no. You were going to tell us about worms. I was. Well, so I'll I'll quickly go over it. So we kind of talked about this earlier, but I didn't want to butt in and, like, derail getting to the paper. But we were talking about how the immune system can affect the probability that a pregnancy will take hold. And so there's a paper that just came out in Science this week, and what this group... Let's see, it's first author Aaron Blackwell, last author Michael Gervin. And the title is Helminth Infection, Fecundity, and for Age of First Pregnancy in Women. And essentially what this what this group did was that they followed, I think about a thousand women, let's see here, um, in Bolivia. So they're all they were all native women and they, they tracked when they had their first child, how many years they had in between delivering children, and what the age was when they had their last child. And they also tracked their infection with this one helmet, which I'm not going to be able to say properly, <laughs> Ascaris lumbricoides and hookworm infection. Sounds good to me. Yeah. And so when uh, women were, the long and short of it is that women, when women were infected with the Ascaris worm, they had earlier first pregnancy, a shorter time in between births and later last pregnancy. So they had a, a longer window of, of having children and shorter time in between having those children. And then interestingly, if a woman was infected with hookworm, she had a, a later first pregnancy, an earlier last pregnancy, and longer time in between having children. So they had a shorter w- window of, of childbearing. And on average, women who had these hookworm infections had three less children over the course of their life of their childbearing years. And so they start to hype. So this is that's that's what the data of the paper shows. But what they start to hypothesize in the discussion, which is of interest to our conversation earlier today, is that they see that in the Acaris lumbricoides infections, that this is a Th2 response. And so it's like a very strong Th2 response. Whereas the hookworm infection leads to a mixed Th1, Th2 response. So the, the idea was that in the hookworm infection, there's the immune system is more inflammatory. And so you are less likely to have a successful implantation. But in, in the second worm, in fact, it, during the Th2 response, because you have more of like a, as Matt was saying, like wound healing, less inflammation, this is more this leads to like a more suppressed immune system and a highly likelihood of um, implantation. And so women are now, I mean, a lot of people have made a big deal about this saying, we need to go get, we want it. So, I mean, in, in developed countries, that there's a lot of women who are interested in extending fertility for like lots of different reasons. And so this is like an interesting idea that like maybe if we could modulate the immune system, we could, we could modulate fertility. Or you just infect everyone with helmets. So they yeah. say, like, maybe don't do that. <laughs> um, it would also protect us from audio, uh, autoimmunity and allergies. Yeah. That, However, it would make us more susceptible to malaria, HIV, TB. Yes, some exactly. Other things as exactly. Well. So you don't want a generally suppressed <laughs> immune system, but maybe <laughs> you know, it, it's like a, it's a, it's an interesting idea put forth. Yeah. Yeah. I have no, the immune system cool. is interacting cool. with um, Kate, pregnancy. you should do a mini-sode about this and explain it in more detail. 
Maybe, but that's pretty much all the detail that's necessary. Oh, okay, fine then. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is just, you know, it's just like a longitudinal study. They're reporting these like three different factors. Um, I mean, what would be interesting if someone started to follow up looking at, um, I mean, there's so much, there's so much money and like interest in fertility, like IVF received a Nobel prize that I think it's surprising that it's taken this long to start to think about the immune system in a very, like in a medical way when you're thinking about birth and them babies, <laughs> sorry, little, uh, babies. little gone with the wind reference. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. So you might want to think about that as you sum up the paper for everyone. So I'm sorry. I'm going to have to head out. <laughs> okay. Thanks, right. Kate. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. I'll see you later. Bye. So we don't have a ton left to do. There's one more inscrutable figure. And the results here, they're, they're now trying to draw distinctions in the microbiome between basically women that have a history of UTI and women that don't. I think, again, these these statistical separations, particularly the PCA plot in this, is even less convincing than in the previous figure. So I'm not willing to actually give any credence to their, uh, to their distinction between these two populations. But Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it could be worth checking into right as as it goes forward but i think that the meat of this paper or the importance of this paper is really just showing that this is an environment that's much more complicated than we thought it was you've already got these complicated immune factors that we talked about earlier and then throwing an entire commensal load on top of that you know how are those how is the maternal immune system that's already modified handling these commensals while at the same time managing the fact that you've got a totally foreign blastocyst implanting and stabbing at your spiral arteries trying to get blood Mm -hmm. like this is it's it's a messy process already in a totally sterile environment and i just think it's really interesting that there may also be all of these pro-inflammatory normally signals just sort of hanging out around yeah and i think it's it's also interesting to consider because we know that the the microbiome of newborn infants is dramatically affected by the method of delivery and i wonder if part of that is that is part of that is influenced by the microbes that are in the placenta as they're developing or if that's just completely unrelated yeah yeah i think a lot more could be done like you said very hard to do these sorts of experiments unfortunately i think a huge amount of effort was put into the collection and the sample processing in this paper. So I imagine that this will probably be a slow moving field. Yeah. And so for budding immunologists out there, <laughs> maybe reproductive immunology is an opening. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the main, the main issue here seems to be that when we talked about like what has, what has led to a slowdown in high profile metagenomic type studies. And I think that unfortunately, once you characterize something, that's really only like the first 10% of the story. You really now need to do experiments to see if any of this stuff that is associated is actually causal in either direction. And that requires doing experiments usually with mouse models because we can't experiment on humans because we like, you know, listen to the last episode if you want to hear more about the ethics of experimentation. <laughs> yeah, well, what we need is humans without brains that we can keep <laughs> Don't, alive. Nope. I nope, think we that's decided what we decided on. Nope, no, we, we decided, decided not, not to, do to do that. that. Uh, I remember. Yep. <laughs> so I think it's going to be really hard, but coming up with interesting ways of studying complex microbial populations is going to be essential. So yeah, yeah, that's the. I paper. agree. Okay. Well. 
Unfortunately, we don't have Kate to give running commentary of the end of the show, but... So this has been Audio Immunity, episode 14. I'm Kevin Bonham with Matt Woodruff and Kate Franz. Uh, You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or any other podcast service. Uh, And if you like the show, please leave a rating on iTunes. It really helps with our visibility. We also have a website, immunity.org. It's E-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y dot O-R-G. And we have said on this podcast multiple times that we have a Facebook page. And in every (laughs) previous episode, that has been a lie. Because apparently we set up a podcast or a Facebook page and then never published it. So I am going to actually hit publish before I post this episode. So if you are hearing the sound of my voice, we do have a Facebook page. And it's at facebook.com slash audio immunity you can also leave feedback on the website and the music at the beginning and the end of the podcast was written and performed by rachel rennick see you next time